0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited to have with me today Dr. Trevor Jackson to tell us all about his book titled Impunity and Capitalism, the Afterlives of European Financial Crises, 1690 to 1830, which has just come out in 2022 from Cambridge University Press and asks a very important question. Whose fault are financial crises? Who's meant to stop them? Who's meant to clean up after them? And why is it that we now kind of think of them more like natural disasters, things that just sort of happen, versus actually maybe not such a great thing that someone probably did something wrong about, and that's what caused them problems? It turns out that our current conception is not our historical conception. And that we came to this belief um, through a series of events that Trevor talks about in his book. And so I'm very glad to welcome you, Trevor, to the podcast to tell us all about it.
0: Well, thank you for having me.
1: Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself a bit and explaining sort of how you came to write this book?
0: Sure. Um, Well, so I did my PhD in economic history at the University of California, Berkeley. And I came to early modern European economic history by a circuitous route, uh, which is to say that I studied both history and economics as an undergraduate and finished my coursework exactly during the crisis of 2008. And that I think, as with many people of my generation, shaped and shook my understanding of how history and economics fit together. Um, And of course, after the crisis of 2008, there were no jobs. I had no clear idea what to do with myself and so I went off to the London School of Economics to do what I thought would be a master's degree in uh sort of economic development in the historical perspective. I went thinking that I would work on land reform in West Bengal. Um and found that although I was very interested in the development models and thinking historically about the problems of economic development, that the work that really spoke to me was the economic history. Um, And I took a course from Patrick Wallace, who is still there. I think he's head of department now on labor and work in pre-industrial Europe. And that got me thinking about questions of inequality, uh, labor history, social history of how economics plays out on the ground. Um, And so from Thinking I would work on land reform policy in Bengal, I ended up working on a PhD uh, about 18th century Europe under the supervision of Jan de Vries, one of the last great uh, members of a great generation of economic historians. And I had gone off to the archives in my research year thinking that I would find material about state-directed development. I was going to test out some of the development theories that I had learned at LSE in a historical context, and nothing that I found in the archive fit what I thought I was going to find. Um, and so I had a kind of long, dark night of the soul in Strasbourg, thinking, what what will I do with this material? And I asked myself, well, what are the archives telling me? And what the stories they were telling me were a series of essentially rich people screwing each other over and getting away with it. Um, and so I thought, well, maybe I can historicize that. Maybe I can think about change over time in what appears to be a kind of permanent feature of structural class inequality and see if I can tell a story of something transitioning. Um, and just to sort of round out the point, I think many people of my generation who's political and and intellectual subjectivities were formed between the Iraq war and the 2008 crisis, I think many of us have moved collectively without really intending it or articulating it towards writing something like a global history of the 1% or a global history of uh, structural inequalities. And so in that way, I wanted to bring in the new economic history of inequality, but to make inequality into something that's more about politics and social perceptions and injustice and law and the kinds of things that historians work on beyond reconstructing income and wealth dynamics, which is more of what the economic side of uh, economic history of inequality works on. So that's how I came to the project. Mm. Uh, And sometime later, uh, it became this book.
1: Thank you for sharing that with us. I think Um, learning kind of how projects develop is really interesting Um, and often I think for people starting off in research quite helpful to know that sort of the end point is not necessarily what one starts with and how do you adapt and kind of what happens when you find weird things in the archive Um, I think that's something that happens to a lot of us (laughs) Um, and very helpful to kind of understand that process Um, before we dive into what the book ended up as Um, which is probably what we're now going to do. We do need a little bit more foundation, though, um, mainly around the actual title word, right, impunity and capitalism. Capitalism is somewhat better known, um, though you do helpfully define it in the book and kind of particularly how you're looking at it. Um, But I do want to make sure we have a good understanding of impunity. So what actually is it and where does this concept come from um, to bring us into the book?
0: Well, the concept is mostly associated with the world of international law uh, in today's world. So not even so much historically, but um, just the last 20 or so years of international law. And specifically, I think of it as being associated with the International Criminal Court, which was uh, the Rome statute that created it was in the late 90s. It came into force in 2002, and it has as its stated goal, ending impunity and establishing the role of law. And so there immediately we have a kind of uh, juxtaposition that impunity and the rule of law are two separate things that are mutually exclusive to each other. Um, And as I understand it, and again, this is not my primary field, so I'm, I'm something of an outsider here, but as I understand it, the scholarship around the last 20 years of international law has taken what is sometimes called a criminal turn. It's focused on identifying specific wrongdoings that are perpetrated by specific people and prosecuting them on a legal basis. Um, And so there's a whole world of thinking about this kind of international jurisprudence, the way that it fits with histories of human rights, the way that it plays out on the international stage. Um, And so usually when you encounter impunity, it comes around episodes of mass violence, Particularly episodes of civil mass violence, which is to say, not between nation states fighting conventional wars, but very often in the context of, say, insurgencies, civil wars, large scale, you know, civil conflicts. Um, Because, as I understand it, usually in those contexts, the legal system that would hold accountable somebody who has been perpetrating large scale wrongdoing is. The same legal system that that person is usually in charge of you know or they are the sovereign of that uh, polity so you tend to find impunity thinking about these episodes of large-scale violence and the problems of sovereign immunity in the world around us today but as i was reading a, that literature uh, for a class that i was teaching on the history of human rights uh, when i was a grad student at berkeley i found that a lot of the problems that confronted jurisprudence and problems of mass violence sounded very familiar to me as a student of economic history, which is to say that impunity, uh, as I define it, is the capability of uh, causing harm without consequence. However we think of harm, however we think of consequence, both of those are things that we might talk more about and flesh out and think about how they've changed over time and been contested. But at some level, it's about causing harm without facing consequences. And in the jurisprudential world of today, impunity tends to show up when you have a few specific problems, which is to say there's often a culpability problem where, you know, often the the sovereign leader of a country hasn't themselves committed any particular crimes. You know, they've given orders or, or even there are layers of plausible deniability between their particular orders and say a military that has carried them out. Um, so it isn't clear that, a political leader is responsible. Um, there's a problem of scale in that most legal systems are set up to prosecute individual crimes rather than mass crimes. Um, you know, We know how to prosecute an individual murder. We don't know how to prosecute a genocidal massacre. There's just some gap between what the legal system is set up to do and those kinds of harms. Um, and then frequently in the international stage, we run into this problem of, of precedent in that there are new types of wrongdoing that happen that are not yet fixed in either national or international law that have to be thought through. You know, The classic example being that Raphael Lemkin theorizes the concept of genocide after the Second World War um, and in response to the crimes that the world has witnessed. And so I thought, well, look, in a financial crisis, we have very similar dynamics where it isn't entirely clear who has made decisions leading to the crisis, what they knew, what they intended, what they understood about the fallout. It's very hard for us to think about, say, unemployment <laughs> as a social harm that might be somebody's fault. We can prosecute you for theft, but if you fire somebody, that definitely harms them in some way, but isn't you know, a crime. Um, and as, as a kind of cliche of financial regulation, the capacity for ingenuity around financial innovation continually outstrips any kind of regulation there's just far more money and you know effort put into that and so I thought well these are very similar problems can i transport this concept from the world of international law around us today and use it as a lever to try to produce a new way of thinking about inequality and financial crisis in the past And so that's what the book tries to do.
1: So let's start then where the book starts temporally so that we can kind of understand this change over time and how you've traced these concepts. Um, What does the status of impunity look like when the book starts?
0: Well, so the, the classic answer to this is that impunity is a feature of sovereign power. Right. Sovereigns decide on the law, you know, particularly in uh, before the 1680s, say, um, although even then it might be contested before that. But for the most part, as a generalization, before the end of the 17th century, we mostly live in a world of absolute divine sovereigns who are the source of law rather than being subject to it. There's no separate permanent constitutional order. Now, academics can probably hear the asterisk in my voice when I say that. Of course, this is quite disputed in different contexts, but for the most part, sovereigns are not bound by some separate law. And so the usual way of thinking about this is that they are immune from uh, prosecution, from civil suits, from other types of uh, constraint. Now, there is a huge debate about the extent to which on an economic basis, this is really true um, because there is a classic argument in the economic history literature about the glorious revolution of 1688. This the idea of Douglas North and Barry Weingast, who have a very famous paper on the subject and that have written a whole bunch more about it, um, who argue that this world I've described was the case and meant that There was a continual fear on the part of owners of capital and property that sovereigns could expropriate them, uh, whether defaulting on their debt or simply seizing their assets, whatever, and could do it with impunity. And so that meant there was a a limit on the willingness to lend to the sovereign in case he defaulted. Uh, There were problems of capital accumulation and investment, and that this really held back economic growth. And according to this very canonical argument of North and Weingast, with the 1688 revolution in Britain, parliament becomes sovereign rather than the king. They nationalize the debt. Um, And that's the first moment when we now have a constitutional constraint on sovereign uh, violations of property rights. Again, this is, of course, hugely controversial. There's a big argument about this, but that tends to be taken as you know, end of the 17th century is a, a, a constitutional moment in which sovereigns begin to get constrained specifically by laws, specifically focusing on the protection of property. Um, so that's where the book begins, is is investigating that moment um, and thinking about, you know, whether that story holds up and, and if it holds up uh, to this new concept of impunity. And does it? I think it does. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think it does. You know, one challenge of thinking about impunity that I've already kind of hinted at is what kind of consequences we think are just and equitable consequences for some sort of wrongdoing. Um, You know, I mean, an example from today's world is that Bernie Madoff died in jail. Um, Now he perpetrated a you know, a crime and numbering in the tens of billions of dollars. Um, was that a just, you know, consequence? Maybe, maybe. In the case of the, the 1690s, um, the, the case that I, that I tend to think about that makes it, you know, points to a moment of transition, but also the difficulty of thinking about what those consequences might be and why we have to think about them in the terms of the people at the time. Uh, The case has to do with what's called the stop of the exchequer in 1672 when Charles II essentially defaults on his debt. And at the time, the royal debt is held by about 12 people uh, who are goldsmith bankers. They're all ruined. He imprisons many of them. Um, This is a classic case of the sovereign violating property rights without consequence. Um, Now, that happens in 1672 the surviving goldsmith bankers eventually sue in something called the case of the bankers. So, okay, here's a case where we can have a legal prosecution. Does that impinge on this concept of impunity? Well, I kind of don't think so because it takes like 35 years and a couple of changes of monarchy before they finally get a conclusion. And in doing so, the lawyers on both sides articulate exactly the concepts that i've set out for you the, the lawyers on the side of the crown say look the crown is sovereign it's the source of law it can't be sued without uh its consent and on the other side we have this idea well the law should bind everyone we're developing a constitutional settlement property rights should be protected and so i think of this as a moment the first of a beginning of a moment of transition away from the older world in which this would not have been contested into a world in which it is being contested but has not yet arrived somewhere else.
1: Mm. And one of the key um, aspects of this transition is you talk about the financial revolution and how crucially it was part of this idea of kind of what could be contested. But one aspect I found fascinating was that it expanded out who could be Contested in a lot of ways, so it was no longer just about the sovereign as the particular person to kind of go to, um, or be mad at. So, can you tell us more about kind of the financial revolution's role in this transition and expansion?
0: Yes. So, the the North and Wine Guest story that I've just told you uh, is canonically is the the kind of origin point of this roughly forty year period. That financial historians call the financial revolution, which is to say a shift from uh, state fi- financing, meaning taxes, spending, debt, being the prerogative of the individual sovereign and becoming a permanent institutionalized managed feature of a permanent constitutional national government. Um, so we go from the debt being the personal private debt of Charles II, the guy, to being the permanent debt of the English government writ large. That's the kind of classic transition. And that in doing so, you know, this comes with these constraints on the sovereign that I've mentioned, um, but also comes with a range of new institutional structures. The Bank of England is, of course, the classic example. Um, it's set up in 1694 to manage the national debt So it loans a bunch of money to the crown in exchange for its charter, and as part of its charter, it manages the debt. Um, And scholars take this moment as a, a huge expansion in the capacity of European states to borrow because they now have institutions that are dedicated to doing that because people feel safer lending to a permanent national government, especially in the English case, a national government in which parliament is essentially a set of landowners and merchants, and they are lending to the government that's comprised of wealth themselves. And so they feel relatively confident that they will repay themselves. Um, We get a professionalized tax bureaucracy, so it's no longer a series of venal offices that makes tax collection more efficient, delivers more revenue to repay this debt. And that allows specifically, uh, and this is the argument of John Brewer's book, *Sinews of Power, that specifically allows Britain that has a full consummated version of the financial revolution to borrow enormous amounts of money, which it uses to fight and win a series of wars with France across the 18th century, Um, which otherwise we would have predicted, look, Britain's a small, rainy, poor place, um, (laughs) endemically suffers from uh, perhaps suboptimal governance, and uh, you would have expected that they would lose these wars to much larger, richer, more powerful France, but they don't. Um, And this is the answer, right? They're able to leverage more money. So these new institutions are government chartered for the most part, or literally parts of the government, but are also not personalized. So they create a new kind of class of bureaucrats, financiers, professional managers of capital um, who are constantly doing the work of collecting and directing this flow of cash. Um, And it's just so technically challenging. (laughs) And there's so much specialized knowledge involved that this class of people has a kind of special role in governance. Um, And finance stops being something that is based on a household that an individual might understand and becomes something quite technical that you need specialized knowledge to understand. And it becomes difficult for outsiders to understand when something goes wrong, why it went wrong, whose fault it was. Could something have gone differently? You know, This is one of the first moments of a separation of an economic and financial sphere from the political and social spheres that it had formerly been embedded in.
1: Which is crucial, right? It's very hard to hold people to account if you don't actually understand who you're meant to hold to account for specifically what.
0: Yes. And I think Where we see episodes of impunity, not just in economics, but writ large, because we have carved out separate spheres of social life that have their own rules and norms. And under normal times, those rules and norms are maybe constrained to that sphere. But when there's a crisis and they bubble over uh, into other spheres, suddenly we're confronted with the fact that we don't have the laws or the concepts or the political will or the means or the technical knowledge or whatever. To impose the normal structures of justice onto these separate spheres, and so I think that's why we see it in the like an international conflict context today. I think that's why we see it in a separate sphere of finance in the early modern world.
1: So thinking about this international um, context of war um, and thinking about kind of justice, one thing that you bring up in the book is transitional justice, uh, which we might think of, um, certainly in my field, as kind of a much more current, modern thing, not so much 1720s. But the book actually makes a case that we can perhaps understand the financial crisis of 1720 in the context of this financial revolution you've just been describing to us, actually through that sort of transitional justice lens. Can you take us through this?
0: Yeah, um, and this, this may be a stretch, but I, I think there's something to it. Um, so transitional justice, as is usually applied today, happens you know, in similar context to what I've already described around circumstances of impunity, where we've had some sort of change of government or constitutional order often following episodes of civil conflict. And those moments are faced with a problem of like a, both. How do we construct a new legitimate constitutional order Which is a problem that i'm very interested in and i think we'll talk more about particularly if we get to the french revolution um so you know that's a problem in any context establishing constitutional legitimacy is a major political uh, and social challenge but in these particular post-conflict moments you're also faced with the problem of how this new constitutional order can deal with the crimes of the old and so transitional justice is this whole body of thought about how those problems can get managed um and whether the best thing to do is to have say a truth and reconciliation commission or to have in some cases they're are advocates for the idea of impunity that really the best thing to do is allow blanket amnesty for the the crimes of the past regime because trying to litigate them will open up continued civil and civic conflict um so, okay, there, there again, this is how impunity plays out in today's world. And I found it quite striking that this financial revolution that I've been describing with all these new institutions, this new set of financial knowledge and practitioners that are attached to the government is also a moment of constitutional change. It's the end uh, in 1688 of a monarchy and the creation of a new one. And it comes with a Bill of Rights. Um, it comes with a new kind of relationship between parliament and the sovereign. In an older historiography, I'm thinking of Christopher Hill here and like the classic British Marxist historiography, 1688 ends close to a century of conflict over the legitimate structure of English governance. Um, And I thought, well, if there's this change in a constitutional order at the same time that we're getting this new institutional structure and it all culminates in a crisis. This seems very similar to me to these contexts of transitional justice. And I think there's been a move in the last, I don't know, 10 or 20 years to thinking about the Glorious Revolution of 1688 as more of a rupture than we used to think of it. You know, it's classically thought of as this very peaceful, kind of seamless transition of power. Parliament invites. Uh, the Dutch Stadtholder William across the channel and he peacefully, you know, it's glorious. He peacefully takes power. You know, of course, in the Dutch historiography, they call it the glorious invasion. Um, And, you know, mention that he crosses the channel with a huge armada and London is occupied by his military for two years. And, you know, maybe England is just the most successful outpost of Dutch colonialism. But, Uh, (laughs) That historiography aside, I think particularly since Steve Pincus's book on 1688, we think of 1688 as more of a a major constitutional rupture. And so I wanted to take that seriously um, and think about the problems of founding a, a new constitutional order. And if one of the claims to that order's legitimacy is its protection of property, and we've created a new property class to protect that property, and that property class... Produces a crisis that seems like a challenge to that project of constitutional legitimacy. Um, mm. And that crisis is the crisis of 1720.
1: Mm. Well, that answer uh, definitely is persuasive in and of itself and also helps me uh, realize why I immediately understood it, um, having learned rather a lot from Steve Pinkus myself. <laughs> uh-huh. um, <laughs> that tracks very clearly. Um, but I do want to kind of continue moving chronologically. Uh, because a lot of these threads continue. And in fact, you've already hinted a little bit at the next bit yes. of history that I want to ask about. Um, the French Revolution changed rather a lot. Yes. <laughs> what did it change in this conversation around impunity?
0: Well, I should, uh, before answering that, which I promise I will, um, you know, I've talked almost entirely about Britain so far. Mm. Um, the book is trying to be not a comparison between Britain and France, but really between them in the sense that it's about the development of impunity in European financial markets. And by 1720, we have integrated financial markets between Mm -hmm. Paris, London, Amsterdam, to some extent other places. Um, And so the 1720 crisis is the world's first international financial crisis. And that's where the first arc of the book terminates.
1: And I will point out to listeners um, that the book has Loads of cool sources and details explaining exactly how integrated these financial networks are at this point, (laughs) um, which I must admit was more closely integrated than I had thought, um, purely from the political side. Um, And the stuff you did find in the archives, as much as it might have confounded you initially in the project, comes through really clearly um, to show that there really is quite a lot that's happening between different nationalities and countries. And we don't have this kind of hardened sense of, oh, well, you're English, so I don't talk to you. Oh, you're French, I don't work with you. Um, That might have been happening on the political level, but it definitely doesn't seem like it was financially.
0: Right. The capital definitely is flowing freely across borders. They're international networks, intermediaries, but it's a pretty small community. It's not a lot of, you know, the same people keep showing up, they're moved they know each other, they've, they're indebted to each other, they've been in business with each other, they screwed each other over. And we've um,
1: done it for decades, which I thought was interesting decades. if we're talking about change, is that yeah. all sorts of things are happening in the 1700s. And yet the people involved in moving lots and lots of money are actually quite often the same.
0: Yes, yes. And I think that's because they trust each other, even though they kind of screw each other pretty frequently, but I think (laughs) I I can't tell if that's just sort of all in good fun or if it's a kind of a social norm or they expect it or what, but they do trust each other, whatever trust means in their community. And they have the knowledge of how to do this stuff. There's a a set of technical information. Um, But they're a surprisingly persistent community across time. And even their children and grandchildren, you know, the same sets of names show up in the 1780s they show up again in the 1820s. there's there's a lot of persistence surprisingly um, but but a lot of that work about the market integration is you know I'm, I'm living in a house that Larry Neal built yeah, starting in the, the 1990s. He's done a ton of the particularly the quantitative price integration work. Um, he did amazing stuff there. So which is to say there's a whole French element that we haven't touched on very much but now that we're getting to the revolution, um, one of the big projects, or maybe obsessions, of the French Revolution, the revolutionaries of various stripes, is about accountability and the interesting ways that accounting and accountability fit together. So Jacob Soul has a great article about this in Representations, uh, about the Comte Rendu of 1781, which is one of the first moments where uh Jacques Necker, who used to be the uh, the finance minister, essentially, tries to produce a budget. He tries to figure out how much money the French crown has, where it's going, what it's spending it on. Um, it's this lengthy, you know, it's, it's like, I don't know, it's like a, a, it's a government budget, but it becomes a bestseller. It's a major controversial political pamphlet because of what it reveals about uh, <laughs> the government's well, is it incompetence? Maybe, you know, is it a different form of competence? Who knows? Um, but what it reveals about what the government has been up to and how solvent it is. And I think beginning in the 1770s, 1780s, France is obsessed with the idea of accountability, that things are going wrong. There's a sense of stagnation. They're losing wars. These things must be somebody's fault. Um, and by the time we're in the revolution, the revolution is constantly calling on people to account for themselves. What have they done before the revolution? What have they done during the revolution? Um, there's a whole sort of, Carla Hess a terrific historian at Berkeley is working on this about uh, the ways that people produce a kind of new genre of writing that are these like autobiographies that are accounting for their class position. They're the source of their money, uh, what they've done to support the revolution. And that seemed to me to be a clue, that if we have this panic about accountability, well, it must be responding to something. Um, And once I looked into that, what I found, of course, is that uh, although we've had decades now of reframing the French Revolution as being a matter of largely discursive political conflict, that at some level, the The thing happens, of course, because of a fiscal problem, the crown can't pay its debts. It lacks the political legitimacy to raise taxes. Um, And so once the last package of financial reforms fails, and it fails because of a financial scandal, the government is forced to essentially call a constitutional convention, what we Americans would call a constitutional convention. They call the Estates General to rewrite the structure of French, French governance and you know i was struck by the fact that there there is a decade of the 1780s of just recurrent scandals and crises and crashes and bubbles and all sorts of stuff in the paris financial market exactly as the government is trying to get its fiscal house in order and they come together in this last reform package that fails because the finance minister turns out to have been embezzling out of the treasury he gets caught uh it turns out the people who are investigating them themselves have been bribed you know it's this mess of corruption um and that delegitimates the last reform efforts leading to the revolution and so of course in that context you have a kind of panic about accounting and accountability um and to actually answer the question one thing that i think the revolution does is by trying to identify and root out uh, forms of impunity. It creates new categories, new ways of thinking about impunity, new ways of thinking about wrongdoing, uh, thinking about accountability. Not all of which are, you know, I don't want to say accurate. Because I'm not going to make that judgment, but not all of which do the work they think it's going to do. Um, And, you know, they they kind of uh, go too far in the other direction, you might say, Um, trying to produce a a sense of social accountability and a sense of a complete unity between virtuous justice and public governance that doesn't work. And the project of trying to create it is destructive, uh, including of itself. But that's the goal.
1: Hmm. I thought this is fascinating because, um, of course, we all know about sort of the French Revolution going around trying to uproot all the things um, and trying to make everything sort of perfect in a lot of ways, whether that's literally time um, down to anything else, and yet had never really thought about it in terms of um, sort of financial structures. And yet, what is more indicative of the old regime than this?
0: Right. And they begin by you know confronted with this intractable fiscal problem all these problems of reforms all this corruption and very strikingly the the first you know gathering of the national assembly forbids not not only refuses to default on the debt the king's debt you know um not only refuses to default but forbids discussion of default and very frequently invokes the 1720 crisis as a historical parallel now they have a kind of distorted historical memory of the 1720 crisis and one of the themes that runs through the book is the way that each crisis plays out through the distorted lens of our memory of the previous crisis and this is a pretty classic example of that happening um, but they really try to essentially to do the british financial revolution again but in a different context. they are trying to constrain the sovereign create a transition to a constitutional order that will protect property rights. In, in order to do that, they have to invent new types of property rights to be protected. But a lot of the revolution is trying very hard to pr- to protect modern, in the sense of alienable, transferable, individually held property rights. Um, and that holds all the way through even the terror you know, it's the directory after the fall of Robespierre that eventually defaults on the debt, institutes forced loans. That's when you actually have the hyperinflation. Um, it isn't It isn't the Jacobins. <laughs> you know, it's after that. The Jacobins are, have a very different vision of property and its role in the social order, but they're still trying to preserve it. You know, it's still an attempt to create a constitutionally constrained sovereignty that protects property rights. It's just a different vision of that.
1: Which is quite interesting to think about, um, given... How much rights come into thinking about the French Revolution and kind of what things mm-hmm. were being protected versus not. Um, and in some ways, I suppose it then, this creation of new categories, right? The, the expansion of the monitoring, the regulating, the, the attempting mm-hmm. to kind of control these financial networks and actions, um, in a lot of ways, kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. And, but we're going to get to, I think, probably a little later on why that's also a bit of a problem. We've mentioned a few of it already, the idea that it becomes more complicated. It's less easy to understand, less easy to get angry about. Um, and But this is kind of part of a trend. It's not just the French Revolution that is expanding this out. Um, obviously, we don't have the same system now that we did with the French Revolution. So how did we sort of move from that point? To an even more institutionalized um, mm. way of thinking about impunity.
0: Well, so I think what happened is that the revolution has this kind of mania for accountability and for finding people who have been conspiring against the people, the Republic, France. There are various different political groups have very different ideas of you know what is the good thing that is being conspired against. But the revolution as a whole has a real kind of paranoia that. Uh, there are groups that see themselves as being outside the law and are acting, I would say, with impunity to harm the, the legitimate legal uh, nation. Again, I can a term. Different groups have different visions. And so if you think that there is a group of people who have constructed themselves as being outside of the law, in some ways that justifies acting against them with a similar degree of violence, or similar regarding them as categories outside of the legal order, and so the revolution has these kind of concepts of civil death, which is to say the loss of your civil or political rights, um, and the way that émigrés, enemies of the people, conspirators, um, suspects, as a key category, particularly during the terror, are groups of people who who are sort of thought to have uh, forsaken or given up uh, voluntarily their full participation in the political world and so having done that they no longer you know uh, are bound by the protections that the legal order might provide and so in you know in this way it isn't as though impunity is a sort of single linear variable that's either growing or decreasing across time but rather each moment of a kind of transitional constitutional order that is also coinciding with a financial crisis recreates these same problems of impunity. How do we govern international financial markets? Does a constitutional order bind private property or is private property a separate concept? Um, How do we solve these problems? And the revolution tried to solve them all, uh, all in the same sort of focus on virtue as the key, or at least the Jackmans focused on virtue as the key kind of organizing concept that would ensure a unity between the constitution, the people, the property, this whole uh, civil world. But in doing so, they were more effective at destroying the old order than at creating the new, which is often how Something like a constitutional uh, conflict plays out. Right? And this is kind of the classic story of the revolution. Okay, we all agree the old regime isn't working, is in terminal crisis, can't solve its own problems. We agree that it must be destroyed. And so we have this wonderful moment of unity in the early revolution. But the fact that we agree on the destruction of the old does not imply that we agree on what the new should look like. And particularly, if the old order's legitimacy rested on its duration, on a sense of tradition, on a claim to divinity because it was a divine order and the king is literally kind of God's manifestation on earth, if we get rid of all of that, why is any particular new constitutional settlement legitimate? Because it was just written by some people you know, yesterday. <laughs> and so if you don't like it, why not write your own? And so the revolution destroys the old, but then goes through a series of new constitutions that can never quite achieve any kind of legitimacy. And so it takes really until the exhaustion of all these political projects through the decade of the 1790s um, and a real sense that what we need is stability rather than some sort of achievement of a utopian goal. And we have arrived eventually at Napoleon. And Napoleon's coup uh, on the 18th Brumaire, uh, 1799, succeeds because he appears to bring stability um, and bring an end to the problems of constitutional legitimacy. And and he does that largely because he just keeps winning battles, and that can be his claim to legitimacy, and it works. Um, And he does have to put down a couple of rebellions, but that, you know, it takes the failure of many alternatives to arrive at the kind of settlement that we get in the first decades of the 19th century. It's not like that was the plan, that was the solution, or that there was only one possible outcome. Instead, you know, the destruction of the old takes a very long time to end up at a kind of compromise settlement of the new.
1: And I think that point about kind of, it wasn't inevitable, is <laughs> really... Right important um, because we do think of financial crises now as being in a lot of ways inevitable. Right. Um, and it's. I'm glad you've kind of raised it that it didn't have to be that way. Right. But one of the reasons it does seem to be that way now is because of how impunity has become intertwined and tangled up with economic inequality and class. How did right. that happen?
0: Well... There's a couple of components, I think, to the, to answering that question. Um, so for the most part, most study of financial crises, um, is as you would expect is mostly done by economists and economists and economics writ large tends to be a kind of law giving discipline. They're interested in generalizable concepts, external validity, some sort of cumulative approach to knowledge that, such that we can learn true things in one particular context and apply them somewhere else. And so the way that they approach studying financial crises is to try to unearth patterns, types of regularity, laws that govern them. And I think that gives financial crises an element of inevitability because we end up with this kind of narrative that a financial crisis follows a set pattern, you know, where we have whatever initial enthusiasm and then uh, you know irrational enthusiasm and then it bursts and then it unwinds. Whatever you know, most work on this has a kind of schematic structure like that, and in that way, I think that does the work of naturalizing crises, um, and that means that we'll have them regardless of. The underlying equality or inequality of a social structure, regardless of the role of finance in the political or constitutional world, let alone in kind of the social world, let alone the role of finance in an overall economy. I think it, it has this naturalizing function. Um, and it's pretty rare, I think, for historians to study financial crises. Um, and when we do, we tend to study one specific one and tend to focus on the ways that it was contested and variably experienced and kind of depended a lot on social context. Uh, Jessica Lepler's book on the many panics of 1837 is fantastic as an example of that. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm trying to take from both and think about how each crisis, as I've already said, is kind of interpreted through the distorted historical memory of the previous one, which means that none of them happen in isolation, which means that I can't exactly do a, like, you know, scientific experiment on any of them because they're all reflecting previous half learned or, or, uh, inaccurately learned lessons. And it means that since I can't, uh, isolate any of them to do experiments on the way that a scientific discipline might want to do. At the same time, they do build on each other such that the analysis of one seems to me to leave out the possibility of a grander arc of change, which was what I, the the game that I was hunting. So, okay, what kind of social dynamics do I think might have an effect on the severity of financial crises, the way that they play out, and also be affected by them. And, you know, of course, the answer is inequality. That particularly when we talk about early modern financial crises, these were, for the most part, not major macroeconomic events. The 1720 crisis uh, was a big deal for a small group of people um, that group of professional managers of capital that we've already mentioned, many of them were ruined by it. Many parliamentarians lost a lot of money, but the the English and French economies were agricultural. Uh, Most people did not experience these things at all. The French 1720 was a bigger deal for regular people because it had a monetary element. And so the way that money played into people's lives affected more regular people. But even then, you know, this is not something like the great depression. So, what that means is that the social incidence, if you will, of financial crisis in the early modern world and its appearance in the historiography is itself a function of what set of people was in the financial world, in the financial community, um, had access to finance, participated in it, etc. Um, so, there, a financial crisis is a kind of function of inequality rather than maybe a producer of it. And at the same time, impunity. Is clearly adheres to power in some way. That one way we can recognize power is escaping consequences or not being bound by rules or at least not bound as severely as somebody who has less power. And so I thought, well, impunity might then bring together these structures of economic inequality that I think are underpinning financial crisis, but also give me a way of thinking about political and social power and the way that. Economic inequality translates into power, which, of course, is is <laughs> you know the big question that we're all interested in all the time.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. I, I think this idea of kind of who is able to participate, but therefore also who is impacted, um, is something that is, I think, probably too easy to forget again when we look back. Um, given how differently sort of financial markets and the global economy work now. Um, But that's not to say that this history isn't relevant to today, because in fact, um, when you talk in the book about the Panic of 1825, uh, that in a lot of ways seems to be a more familiar sort of financial crisis. Um, Can you tell us about kind of this particular one and why was it? the type that we're used to now and in a lot of ways, kind of the first one like that.
0: Yes. So the book ends with the panic of 1825, um, which is the first, I would say of a series of financial crises that happen at about the rate of once per decade in the kind of broad British dominated Atlantic economic sphere from well, 1825 to 1913. Um, They happen pretty regularly and none of them individually is kind of that big of a deal. Um, There is a previous generation of research that just calls them business cycles. This is very much where this approach that I've described of thinking about cycles and predictable uh, uh, structures of each crisis. This is where this comes out of because we have a series of cases. And so we can think about, you know, think about them as a population. Um, And 1825 is the first. And it's the first crisis, as far as I know, that's generated endogenously by the financial system itself, which is to say that it's not the result of a war or a harvest failure or some sort of external disaster. It comes out of the internal logic of uh, the specifically British financial system. So, you know, without dwelling too long on on the gritty details of 1825, it has a couple of things that make it seem extremely familiar to us. And one is that it has banks. Uh, So one thing that connects a financial crisis to the real economy with real people in it is banks. In 1720, there's nothing like a national banking system. Regular people have not put their life savings or their retirement or something uh, into a bank that then fails and then costs them something. There are no banks. And so the people who have access to finance are people who know each other and each kind of merchant acts as a banker for other merchants in their network. And so the fallout is mostly confined to that network. By the time we're at 1825, the Napoleonic Wars and the end of the Napoleonic Wars have seen the growth in Britain of country banks. Very unclear how many, eight or 900 is the best guess. Um, And these are providing what we would call like retail banking services to businesses, farms, individuals all over Britain. And they in turn uh, depend on what are called correspondent banks in London for liquidity when they need it. Um, And those banks in London in turn turn to the Bank of England. And so the other element of this beyond uh, banks that affect regular people is that we have monetary policy. As, as I think we would recognize it today, the Bank of England, doesn't yet quite know how monetary policy works. Canonically, we think that Walter Bajid invents this in his book Lombard Street in 1873. I think that he's kind of setting down a, a body of common knowledge that had been widely known for decades previously. I think that's putting it a bit too late. I'm an advocate for considerably earlier dating of central banks, but in 1825, the Bank of England precipitates this crisis in exactly the way that it does throughout the 19th century, um, which is to say that it faces a drain on its reserves for a variety of interesting reasons that I'm waving my hands to, to indicate that I'm happy to talk about later, but you can't see me and neither can the listeners.
1: <laughs> They're um, by promise, listeners, all the yes. interesting reasons.
0: Yes. Um, You know, it has to do with Latin American mines and sovereignty and colonialism and all sorts of things. But for our purposes, the Bank of England faces a drain on its reserves. Uh, And so it raises interest rates. And when it raises interest rates, well, that means that money flows in from elsewhere, which in turn means that fewer people spend, fewer people borrow, it becomes more expensive to borrow. Um, And its correspondent banks. You know, lose deposits to the Bank of England, which in turn means that they call in their deposits from the country banks. The country banks lose uh, their deposits as people move it to the higher interest rates, of the Bank of England. And at the same time, these country banks face uh, annual tax payments that have to be remitted to London that happened at exactly the wrong time. And Many countries in Latin America that had received sovereign loans default on their debts for, again, a variety of interesting reasons. And so people suddenly take a loss on their financial uh, portfolios and they need to rebalance. Kind of all these different components of the normal workings of a financial system intersect in in December of 1825 to cause country banks to start to fail. They can't get access to cash. They turn to their corresponding banks in london who say sorry we don't have any cash you turn to the bank of england and the bank of england is forced to decide whether or not to bail them out but of course the bank of england is well a bank and they are concerned they are a private institution you know the bank of england is a private institution until it's nationalized by a labor government in 1946 um they're concerned with staying in business and so if they bail out uh correspondent banks well that's money coming out of their reserves that makes them more fragile. They'll need to raise interest rates yet further, which makes the crisis yet worse. You know, And so this is an early moment where we've got a banking sector that is failing, that's impacting regular people, which is exactly what happens You know, in the classic story of the Great Depression. It's also a moment in which monetary policy, arguably, I argue, causes the crisis. It's a moment where international financial markets unpredictably, you know, mean that the failure of a mine in Argentina leads to a bank failing in Cornwall. Um, and so there's this unpredictable chain of cause and effect. And it's a moment where we get a kind of question of, well, does the central bank need to bail out large financial institutions that otherwise will go under? Um, and the bank of England does bail out a couple of them. Uh, and then it finds that it itself is likely to go bankrupt. And they turn to the government and say, we need to suspend the convertibility of pounds to gold because people are draining gold out of our vaults. The government says no. And there's a moment where it looks like the Bank of England will fail. And it gets bailed out by the network of the Rothschild banking family that's able to mobilize something like 7 million pounds from all of their correspondents all over continental Europe and remit it back to the Bank of England to stay on the species standard. And so, the, you know, this is an interesting moment where not only does all of the stuff that I've just described happen, but there's a moment of like kind of, well, is it sovereign? I don't know, maybe. There's a moment of decision about who will get saved and who will pay the costs and consequences of this crisis. And the decision is taken by a private banking entity to bail out another private banking entity, the Bank of England, but one that has kind of central banking responsibilities. And so this private sector financial crisis, of course, has large-scale public consequences, as again, we're kind of familiar with today.
1: Mm, That does sound very familiar, all of those pieces together, Um, and therefore is quite fascinating. Because again, if we go back to the title of the book, right, 1690 to 1830, 1690 sounds rather far away. Um, And sort of where we started this conversation at about kind of to what extent is the king personally versus the institution of the divine right of the king um, responsible for problems seems quite far away. And yet now we're in 1825 and that sounds very familiar.
0: Right. And that that was the goal was to go from an unfamiliar world to a much more familiar one. And or as a a friend of mine put it, uh, how do we go from a world in which a financial crisis is everyone's fault, you know. And we have uh, people prosecuted for the 1720 crisis. Uh, France had a thing called the Chambre de Justice, in which after any financial crisis, the entire financial world is prosecuted. And of course, it's early modern France. There is no such thing as like presumption of innocence. Um, how do we go from that world where it's everyone's fault to by 1825, it's nobody's fault? There is no judicial consequence at all to so the 1825 panic. There's no Investigation. There's no prosecution. There's no sense that anything went wrong criminally at all, that anything was anybody's fault. And correspondents at the time very much describe it like it's the weather. It's a storm that bursts. And throughout the 19th century from then on, when these things happen, as they do very regularly, that's the idiom that everyone uses is that it's an accident. So sometimes there's descriptions of a shipwreck. There's a terrific one of those in, um, uh, the Dickens novel, Little Dorrit. Wonderful description of a financial crisis as shipwreck. Uh, but it's also often described as the weather, that there's a storm that sometimes breaks. These things happen. What can you do? Um, and that, that seemed closer to the business cycle research of the 20th century, thinking about these crises as natural, permanent, and inevitable, and trying to understand, if you will, the financial meteorology behind them. And it struck me that that is something that most writers in the eighteenth, little in the seventeenth century, would not have understood. It would have made no sense to them at all. Um, but it's a world recognizably similar to our own. Mm-hmm.
1: No, absolutely. Um, and I think you've very helpfully explained to us sort of how we went from one to the other. Um, and obviously, I'll point listeners to the book itself for kind of all of the details and sources of the particular financial crises that you've mentioned that mm. kind of um, take us through that transition. Um, and I really, I guess, only have one question left, hopefully not the mm. trickiest one I've thrown at you. Okay. Now that you've sort of solved this confusion for us um, <laughs> in the interview oh. and in the book, is there something you've got your eye on to look at next?
0: Well, of course. Um <laughs> You know, I've, I have been writing for the popular press about impunity, uh, quite a bit lately because I'm obsessed with it and I think that I see it everywhere. Um, and as I said, you know, I, my political subjectivity was formed between roughly 2001 and 2008. And so, you know, as long as George Bush is free, I will remain upset about impunity. Um, but I think future academic projects are moving on from that. Um, and but at the same time are continuing an interest in the ways that economic history gives us a series of examples of what we might call market failure, you know, of a crisis, uh, a collapse, a disaster of some sort that gets coded and understood as a neutral scientific thing, but in fact at the time was perceived as some sort of inequality and injustice. And so the main thing that I'm interested in right now uh, is what used to be known as a crisis of overproduction or sometimes called a glut. I've been amassing a list of gluts uh, in early modern Europe, which are when we have these moments of very thin markets, very small groups of people. So you have two ships that arrive full of copper in the same colony at the same time. They glut the market. And one of them probably, or, or possibly both of them will go bankrupt because they can't sell all of their copper to make back the money that they spent to buy it in the first place. And so we move from a kind of glutted, commodity market to a financial problem as some merchant fails and then maybe they don't repay their creditor. And so that person fails, etc. Um, and the way that these problems of oversupply, uh, become a very controversial topic in the 19th century, a huge amount of argument in, across Europe and the United States about whether these things are permanent, natural, and inevitable, or somebody's fault. Um, tons and tons of argument about it. By the 20th century, the concept entirely goes away. And we have an orthodox story that Keynes killed the idea uh, by focusing instead on demand management. But once I dug into what Keynes actually says, what he says is not what most Keynesians believe that he said. The people that he critiqued did not say the things that he critiqued them for. The whole concept becomes considerably more complicated. And of course, we still have gluts today. Um, There are gluts in... Earlier this year, there was a glut in rice in thailand there Mm -hmm. is a glut in natural gas in india there's an inventory glut as uh big box stores in the united states unwind their covid production there's a glut in santa barbara cannabis apparently um there's a whole bunch of these things and you know i think the world around us suggests we need better thinking about supply side crises that is not associated with supply side economics um And as somebody interested in the history of capitalism, I think there's something very striking about the way that all economic systems have problems of scarcity, but only capitalism has problems of abundance. And so Mm. how do I tell a history of crises of too much stuff Mm. from spice gluts in Amsterdam in 1602 to whatever, cannabis gluts in Santa Barbara in 2022?
1: Okay, well, that will be fascinating. Um, and we'll have to have you back when that becomes a book to tell us I'll all be about happy to be here. it. Um but in the meantime while you are off researching whatever the glut is tomorrow, um listeners can read the book we've been discussing which again is titled Impunity and Capitalism: The Afterlives of European Financial Crises from 1690 to 1830 out from Cambridge University Press. Trevor, thank you so much for speaking with us on the podcast.
0: Thanks so much for having me.